Hello, you're listening to Dwell on Truth. My name is Brenton Powers, and on today's program, I'm going to be playing some verse-by-verse teachings of mine. So we're going to open with that. In the other half of the show, another truncated teaching of mine, 10 times in your life when the grace of God is needed. God's grace changes everything. For listening to Dwell on Truth, you can find more like this if you'd like to go through on the podcast, verse by verse. We're continuing to study the Bible verse by verse, and the next letter we're going to study is Paul's letter to the Romans. The key verse of Romans is chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here be. So who is this good news for? Well, first, it's for Christians. Sometimes we forget how the gospel works in our lives with God and with other people. We get into trouble by trying to build on another foundation, and we need to get back to this gospel. It's a good reminder that you need Jesus. Maybe you believed and are saved, but you aren't growing in the gospel and applying it to your life daily. Who else is this good news for and this broadcast for? Well, the second group I would say is this is for non-Christians. Maybe you've heard a man-centered gospel, but it wasn't according to the scriptures. Maybe you've believed that you are saved, but you're not saved. Non-Christians need to hear the gospel, and certainly they may tune in to the radio station and, and hear a portion of this message. So every show I determine in my heart to preach the gospel. The main theme of Romans is the gospel. And so I want each message to be a message for Christians and for non-Christians. All of us base our lives and our practice upon what we believe is true and what is good and what we think is beautiful. And if you don't believe the gospel, you will be deceived. You'll do evil and it gets ugly. So man needs salvation. We all need Jesus more than we realize. Paul reminds us of what the gospel is in the book of Romans. Paul writes the gospel according to the scripture, and he writes the scripture according to the gospel. The message of scripture is the gospel. It's good news. Thus, the gospel and the scripture aren't two separate messages, but they're one message. In chapter 1, we'll see the good news and the bad news. The good news in verse 1 through 17. The bad news in verse 18 through 32. We need to understand the good news in light of the bad news. So we understand how great the good news is. In verse 1 through 6, Paul introduces us to himself and what his life is all about as the author of this letter. Let's read verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So the first verse introduces us to the author, and Paul says who he is, his name, Paul, which used to be Saul, but the Lord somehow changed it. Paul means little. It's a very humble name. And the Lord definitely humbled him as he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus appeared to him, and Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And he showed him what he would want him to do. 
to become a servant, to become an apostle, to be set apart for the gospel rather than against the gospel of God. So that's what Paul became, a servant of Christ. He submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Have you submitted to the lordship of Jesus? Have you recognized who he is? If you recognize who Jesus is, then you will know what he wants you to be. Paul was called to be an apostle. Not all are called to be apostles. Some are called to be pastors or teachers or evangelists or prophets or deacons. There's many different spiritual gifts that God wants to give to people. And if they use those, they'll discover what God is calling them to be. So have you discovered what God has called you to be? And Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. That means his life's purpose is now to promote the gospel, to preach the gospel. And it's not Paul's invented gospel. This is the gospel of God, God's message of good news for the world. Paul's in full-time ministry preaching the gospel. Paul finds his identity in the gospel, and he swings within one verse. He swings from talking about himself to talking about the gospel. That's what he's all about. It's too often in our testimonies, we spend so much time talking about ourselves that we forget to share the gospel. And therefore, our testimonies lack power. The word of our testimony ought to be about the gospel. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That means we need to testify about Jesus. So that's what Paul was devoted to doing. But in verse 2, he says about the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God promised that there would be good news before this good news was fulfilled. And where did he promise this? Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He told the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that there would come a Savior. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so there's going to be some kind of enmity. There's a war. There's a fight. There's a struggle going on between Satan and human beings, especially between the followers of Satan, his offspring, and the followers of Eve, that is her offspring, her descendants. And he's saying there is an offspring, a descendant, a singular human being who will bruise your head, who will bruise Satan's head. And God said beforehand that Satan shall bruise his heel. When did that happen? Well, at the cross, Jesus was nailed through the hands and feet as the followers of Satan were inspired by Satan to do. But in that act of Jesus being crucified, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the principalities. He, in a sense, dealt the death blow to Satan. And Satan will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire in the end. But it was through the cross that Jesus disarmed him, defanged him, that lion that is seeking to devour us. Praise God that immediately after the fall of man into sin and death, God revealed his plan to send the Savior who will crush the serpent who tempted man to sin against God. And he will reverse the curse that was placed on humanity. There's not time in this program to go through all of the Old Testament prophecies that reveal the gospel. But as you read the Old Testament, be looking for Jesus Christ as he fulfills more than 300 specific prophecies in his first coming. From Genesis through Malachi, there's so many prophecies. I'd encourage you to go to our website and listen to our studies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But the point here in Romans chapter 1 verse 2 is that God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and God kept his promise. In verse 3 it says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So Jesus was a descendant of Eve, and you follow the genealogies, how it leads to David as the king of Israel 
Israel. And God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and he shall be my son. So Jesus is the son of God spiritually, but physically he's the son of David, descendant of David. Romans 1, 4, and he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus was declared to be the son of God by the father himself. When he was baptized, he said, this is my beloved son. Also, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the father said, this is my son, listen to him. God, the father declared Jesus is God, the son. But also the Holy Spirit made manifest that Jesus is the Son of God. When Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus said it's fulfilled this very day. John the Baptist saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus as a man, but as the Son of God to rise from the dead. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. So you look at Jesus's life and you see evidence and proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's called Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is not his last name, his family name. It's his title. Christ means Messiah. He's the one that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about the anointed one. And he's also called our Lord. Lord means that he's the boss. He's our master. And we've submitted to his rulership over our lives. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and as your Messiah? That's what he is. Receive him as he is, and he will receive you by faith. Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. So Paul's saying that through Jesus, I've become an apostle. It's not because of how great I am, but it's because of his grace. And the purpose of my life is to bring about the obedience of faith for Jesus's name among all the nations. See, there's an obedience that comes from faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you're going to obey Jesus Christ and it's going to bring honor to his name. And the people who will do this will be from all the nations. People from among all nations will be in heaven worshiping God. And Jesus sent his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. God wants us to multiply. And that's why God chooses people to expand his kingdom among the nations. Romans 1, 6, including you who are called to belong to Christ. So he addresses his audience specifically saying you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I'll address you that way. You in Latvia who have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. God has called you to belong to Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You too are to be slaves of Jesus, bond servants, someone who willingly commits his life to his master's will. Jesus taught us to pray, not as I will, but as you will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So do you belong to Jesus Christ? You know, in our day, it's popular to think that each person belongs to himself. But as one famous uh, singer, Bob Dylan, sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the Lord or it may be the devil, but you're going to have to choose to serve somebody. So as Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's my decision. Is it yours? Will you serve the Lord? Well, if we're going to serve the Lord, we need to be reminded of the gospel. So Paul goes on in verse 7 
to talk about who he's writing to, and he's clearly speaking of Christians. He says, Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to those who are saints, those who are made holy by the blood of Jesus, those who are called to be sanctified and to grow in holiness. That's Christians. He wants non-Christians to do that too, and he loves them certainly, but he's speaking of those who are already called saints. If you're called a saint, let's be saints. Let's live like saints. For God is holy, and if he is holy, then we should be holy. And the typical Pauline greeting here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Peace is the result of receiving grace, and we cannot have peace without grace. We'll learn a lot more about grace and about peace with God in this letter. So that's how Paul opens the letter. He wants to encourage the Christians, and he wants to be encouraged by the Christians. Notice how he says in Romans 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He's already encouraged that there are Christians living in Rome, and he's saying, I'm, I'm thankful to God for that. God gets the glory because that faith is from him. And everyone's telling us how the gospel has reached Rome, and there are Christians there. They really believe. And I think the excitement there is that Rome is the center of the Roman Empire at that time, and all roads seem to lead to Rome, and therefore people from all over the world would come there and hear the gospel from these Roman Christians. That's why it's important that they understand the gospel. If you're going to preach the gospel, you need to be sure that you understand it first. So Paul writes a carefully written letter that's very systematic in helping you to understand why the gospel is special, why we need the gospel, and what is the gospel, and how does the gospel get lived out in our lives. So Paul speaks about how he prays for those in Rome. He thanks God for them and for their faith. And then in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. So Paul keeps praying for these Christians in Rome. God, I want to pray for them. I want to be with them. Could you somehow open a door for me to go visit them? As he says in Romans 1.10, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And he writes a personal update about him and his relationship with the Christians in Rome, how he wants to visit them. He doesn't want to just write them a letter and have them figure out how to apply the gospel. He wants to live it out in their midst. Well, in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. In verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So he knows God is in control and he's preventing him from going to Rome, but he believes the Lord's will is for him to get to Rome. And so he's praying for that opportunity. Are you praying for opportunities to preach the gospel? You know it's God's will for you to preach the gospel. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, Go preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, Go make disciples in all nations. Certainly that includes the capitals of nations. In fact, it would be very strategic if we do outreaches in cities, because that's where most of the people are. Why does Paul want to go to Rome? He says in verse 11 and 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we We may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He wants to share some fellowship with them. He wants to give them a spiritual gift. Now, as an apostle, he somehow has a gift to be able to lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit.
spirit and they may manifest some spiritual gift after that. But also it's true for us that in the context of fellowship, we discover what our spiritual gifts are. As we receive from others and we give back, we're mutually encouraged. It goes both ways, the encouragement. If you're just receiving and you're not giving back, you're going to become, well, overweight. You need to have some outlet in your life. You need to use the gifts that God has given you to encourage others and use them according to your faith. That's how the church grows, in fellowship with one another. Too often, we think that going to church is like going to a movie. We go, we sit, we like it, we watch, we listen, and we leave. Built up, maybe. But what are we using that strength that we received for? Just to live our lives with the Lord? That's part of it. But we should also be using the gifts and the strength that we receive from God to minister to others. And Paul needed it. Paul was an apostle, but he also wanted to be encouraged by face-to-face fellowship with Christians. Do you have face-to-face fellowship with other Christians? Or are you only receiving through the radio or through TV or through the internet? You should be a part of a local church where you can have mutually encouraging fellowship. Mutual means it goes both ways. You encourage me, I encourage you. Another reason why Paul wanted to go to Rome In verse 13, part two, he says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wants to reap a harvest. And this is the language that Jesus used when he saw the multitudes and said that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And Jesus sent out the disciples to preach the gospel and to prepare them for his coming. And so the people are the fruit. And reaping people is like picking fruit that is ripe. Some people are ready to be reaped. Some people are ready to come to Jesus Christ, to be gathered into the Lord's barns. Are you ready? You've received the seed of the word. You've been watered. You've grown. You are the fruit of someone else's ministry. Are you gathering with the saints? He also wants to reap some harvest among the rest of the Gentiles. So he seems to be speaking to Gentile Christians. If you say, I love you and I love the rest of the Gentiles, that means you are a Gentile. So these are just some of the Gentiles living in Rome. Rome is mostly Gentiles. There were some Jews, but Romans seems to be written to Gentile Christians living in Rome around the year 56 to 58 AD. Now let's go on to read Romans 1, 14 and 15. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is saying, I have an obligation. God has called me to preach the gospel. So I'm eager to preach the gospel. I feel the same way. I feel like God has called me to preach the gospel. And so uh, I'm eager to preach the gospel and fulfill the ministry God has given me. That's an obligation, I feel, as I've committed my life to this ministry. And I'm actually a full-time missionary. So I have an obligation. I must preach the gospel. But I also have a desire to do it. It's from my own will that I've surrendered to Jesus. And I am thankful to be saved. And I want other people to be saved. So I'm eager to preach the gospel, not only because of obligation, because of obligation to the Lord. I owe it to him because he's saved me. I owe it to him to obey him. But also I feel like Paul, he said, I have an obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to the foolish. I have an obligation to all kinds of people. I have been given a chance to be saved and I've received it. Now I have a message that can save 
Shouldn't I want to share it with them? Don't I owe it to others? If I'm going to love others as I love myself, and I wanted to receive that salvation, then shouldn't I give that chance and that opportunity for them to be saved to them? Whether they're like me or not, Paul was not a Greek, but he felt obligated, he felt in debt to give the gospel to Greeks. He was not a barbarian, someone who didn't speak Greek, but he also felt like he owed it to them to give the gospel to them. That's why wherever Paul went, he made it his goal to preach the gospel. And it's not only to different language groups, but it's also to different levels of education, as he says, both to wise and to the foolish. Actually, sometimes the education you get doesn't make you more wise, but it makes you more foolish. As Paul will talk about later, some people declaring themselves to be wise and becoming professors, they actually become foolish because of what they're professing is foolishness. But Paul felt obligated to preach the gospel to them as well, both to the simple and to the wise. And he explains it in a way that children can understand, but also intellectuals can understand. In fact, the book of Romans is studied by lawyers in law school because of how excellently Paul lays out his case for justification, which is a legal term. How do you apply this to your life? Are you under obligation to preach the gospel? Well, if you're a Christian, you are. Jesus said, go preach the gospel. So you should want to obey Jesus if you love him. But if you're living in Latvia and you look around at the culture you're living in, Do many people around you know the gospel? I would say no, and they need to hear it. If you know the gospel, then woe is you if you don't preach the gospel, because God is looking for a man or a woman that he could use to spread the gospel among those who are not saved. If you're living among non-Christians, you're there to be salt and light. So let your light so shine before them that when they see your good works, they'll remember your words about Jesus and they'll give glory to God. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Riga. The main theme of Paul's letter to the Romans is found in chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. How did Paul feel about the gospel? He said, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel means good news. Paul was ready and willing to preach the gospel. Are you? Am I? I'm ready. Let's go for it. As God said in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So the theme of the whole letter is about the gospel. As Romans verse one sixteen says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. There's nothing to be ashamed about in the gospel. Why are we afraid to share the gospel? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You can only say that if you're fully confident about what the gospel message is. A lot of times people are afraid to share the gospel because they don't know what the gospel is. They're afraid that they won't be able to explain it. But if you've believed the gospel, certainly you know it. Every Christian knows the gospel. How do I know that? Well, if you don't know the gospel, then what are you believing in? If you don't believe the gospel, then you're not a Christian. So the gospel is essential for Christians to know, to believe, and then we need to know how to share it. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. This gospel is powerful. This is powerful news. And it's not just powerful like because I'm shouting it or because it's very well publicized and published. You know, it's not just because the Bible is the most published and best sold and most read book of all time. It is, but the gospel is powerful because it's the power of God that saves people. It's God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It's a powerful gospel, not a weak gospel. If it was weak, we should be ashamed of it. But since it's a powerful message, let's release the gospel. Let's share it. Let's broadcast the seed of God's word, which is the gospel. 
And what is this power for? The power of God for salvation. Well, salvation means that you're in some form of danger, that you need to be saved from something. But it also implies that you need to be saved for something. It's like if someone is drowning in the water, how do you save them? You jump in and you pull them out of the water onto the land. So salvation is to take us from a situation where we're dying to save us from death and an eternal death, the second death, which is separation from God forever. And why is that powerful? Well, if you don't know who God is, you won't appreciate that salvation because, well, maybe it doesn't sound so good to be with God forever. Maybe it sounds better to you to be apart from God forever. But this is good news to be saved for God, to be saved from the ignorance of God, to be saved to know God, because in ignorance you will perish. For lack of knowledge, my people perish. But also, we'll discover what specifically God wants to save us from in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, and also in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Paul spends the better part of three chapters telling us what we need to be saved from. Namely, we need to be saved from our sin and from the consequences of sin, which is separation from God and death and hell under God's wrath forever. It's pretty serious. So it makes the gospel great in our eyes. The less you think you need to be saved, the less great the gospel seems in your eyes. doesn't seem like good news if you don't understand the bad news. So Paul spends time explaining what we need to be saved from. But notice that this gospel is the power of God for salvation. To who? Is everyone saved? No. It says to everyone who believes. It's by faith that we partake in this salvation. Salvation is what God offers through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you need to receive Jesus Christ to experience this salvation. So it's for everyone who believes, not some who believe, but for everyone who believes. But what kind of faith is it talking about here? Well, he'll define that also in chapter four as we talk about Abraham and we need to follow his example of faith. And this message is not only for the physical descendants of Abraham, that is the Jews, but also it's for the Gentiles. That's why Paul says for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why to the Jew first? Well, the Jews were the most prepared to receive the gospel because God had been speaking to the Jewish prophets and to the Jewish people for centuries about the Messiah who would come to bring salvation to them. But he wanted the Jews to also become witnesses to the rest of the world so that the Greeks and the barbarians and the everyone from every nation would come to know the Lord. But it had to start somewhere, and God sovereignly chose to start with the Jews. And he's not finished with the Jews. After saving the Gentiles in the end times, more Jews will be saved. So this is good news. It doesn't matter what nation you're from or what your ethnicity is. This is good news for you if you believe. But if you do not believe, then this becomes bad news and you may not want to hear it. But I encourage you to listen to the end so that you can hear what God has done for you so that you can be saved. Because if you don't know what he's done for you, you cannot believe it and be saved. You're already condemned and you need to be saved. So Jesus said in John 3 verse 16 through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For the world was condemned already because they did not believe in the name of the Son of God. Paul will explain further as we go through the letter of Romans why we need to be saved, how we can be saved, and what will happen after we're saved. The gospel is the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of sanctification. It's the gospel of justification by faith. We'll learn what all of these terms mean as you continue to study with us verse by verse. 
Hope you enjoyed my teaching from almost 10 years ago in Latvia when I was a pastor there, teaching verse by verse through the Book of Romans. If you're just tuning in, this is Brenton Powers, and you're listening to Dwell on Truth. And I also want to thank our sponsor, Top Grade Paving. Thank you, Top Grade Paving, and make sure to contact Robert. Just Google Top Grade Paving on Yelp, and you'll see his beautiful work, see his phone number and get access to a family business giving you smooth driveways, parking lots, curbs, whatever you need. Talk to Robert at Top Grade Paving. So as promised, the second half of this program is a teaching of mine on the topic of the grace of God and why we need it. Continue with the show, dwelling on the topic of God's grace. My message today is geared toward believers. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, you will hear the gospel because I'm an evangelist. So I love preaching the gospel. And the topic today is the grace of God. The grace of God. Now, what's a definition of grace? You can shout it out. Unmerited favor. Merited is not a word we use too often, but that's a good definition. Undeserved favor. So unmerited favor. What is favor? It's when you not only love someone, but you like them. I got that from David Guzik, very technical definition, because this is a life-changing message for me, and I think it could be a life-changing message for you. Many Christians are going around not accessing all of God's grace that's available to them. And I did that for about three or four years before I went to Bible college and took a class from Bob Hoekstra called Growing in the Grace of God. So that's actually my title for today. The grace of God, as we know, as Christians, it's what saves us. God saves us not because we deserve to be saved, but because of his own grace. It's a characteristic of God. He's the God of all grace. And he wants to give grace to those in need of grace, not because they deserve it, just because he wants to. And many of us have a picture of God that he doesn't want to give grace, that he wants everything to be a meritocracy. If you deserve it, then you'll get it. You know, a lot of people try to, and when I was a new believer, we try to do good things in order to get his favor, but his favor is a gift. His favor is granted, not on the basis of our works. So we could start with this first scripture, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the grace of God. Now, if you're taking the grace of God for granted today, I don't want you to do that. It has been granted. We're saved by grace, but there's more grace that we can grow into. In fact, grace helps you to grow. We should grow in our understanding of grace. So as we get into it, another acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not at our expense that we have all the treasures of the blessings in the heavenly realms. It's because Jesus paid the price for us that we have access to all of God's riches. What does that mean? We'll get into that. Another definition I came up with last night, just as I was thinking, alliterating with the letter G, God's gifts granted gratis. God's free gifts that he gives to us. 
So there is true grace and there is false grace. That's the definition of grace, what it really means. But there are two kinds of false grace. And if you're taking notes, the first kind is legalism. I've already talked about trying to get favor by works, by obeying the law. It doesn't work that way. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, Paul says, because grace means it's a gift. And if you earn it, it's no longer a gift. The second kind of false grace is licentiousness. In other words, we're all under grace, so we can sin as much as we want. You've heard that before. Maybe you had that thought before. Well, God will forgive me. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. No, that's not grace either. That's what Jude says in verse 3. False teachers twist the grace of God into lewdness, lasciviousness, licentiousness. Grace is not a license to sin. Neither is it a law that we have to obey to get God's favor, but grace is God's unmerited favor. So I have 10 points today, and I'm going to uh, dive right into the first one. The acronym here I came up with, I got to come up with a better acrostic than just God's riches at Christ's expense. So there's 10 times in our life, just like there's 10 commandments, we need to know that there's 10 times in our life that God's grace can apply. And I'm going to go through it chronologically in order, kind of telling a story about the grace of God. It's a word study from Genesis to Revelation. I like to do these big overviews. So the first point of God's grace, where we experience his grace is granted. God has already granted us grace. In fact, he's given it not just to believers, but the first kind of grace I want to talk about is general grace. I could have also used that word up here. It starts with G. General grace that applies commonly to everybody who lives. And how do I know that God gives grace to everyone who lives, not just believers? Well, it says in Acts 14, 16 and 17, that in past generations, he allowed or he granted all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So God granted grace to pagan Gentile nations and the grace that they could know about was food. I'm alive. I survived. You know, people complain, I, well, I don't have enough. If God was really gracious, I could have all that I need and all that I want. And they, com they complain that God isn't gracious enough to them. But do you know who I hear complaining? People who are alive. <laughs> People who have had, up until now, they've had enough to eat to survive. Acts 17, when Paul preached to the, the Greeks in Athens, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath and everything to mankind. He gives life and breath. So we can start with saying, thank you, God. I've got breath. You've granted me life. In you, I live and move and have my existence. If you exist, it's because God wanted you to exist. He's pleased that you exist. But there's more grace than that. There's a special kind of grace. We're going to go to point number two. God's grace has been revealed, especially in the gospel. So revelation is a gift from God. It says in uh, Romans chapter one that God has made himself known that he exists, that he's all powerful, that he's eternal, and that he's a just judge. He's made himself known to all people, regardless of whether they have a Bible or not. There's enough knowledge through what God has made for people to know that God exists. And this knowledge, that's that's a gift of grace, but there's no knowledge from nature about how to be reached. There needs to be more revelation revealed to the nations. And 
That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whoever believes will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Why? Well, it says back in Romans 1 that there's enough knowledge of God that people are without excuse. They know they've sinned. Their conscience accuses them, but creation doesn't tell people the gospel. That's our job. So how are they going to know about the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the Bible calls it, if it's revealed through us? Now, everyone has been granted the, the, the uh, grace to live in exist. Not everyone has the revelation of the grace that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. But we have that revelation and we can share that with others. It's powerful. That changed my life when I was 17 years old, going to a secular high school. A girl in my art class was sharing with her neighbor about how Jesus is the reason for everything. And I was like, wow, that sounds pretty radical. I heard about Jesus when I was a kid, but I didn't know that everything is about him. And she witnessed to me and she invited me to church. She said, can I pray for you? Can we disciple you? And I said, what is that? Does it hurt? Sounds like discipline. But God was drawing me by their kindness and love and just the simple invitation. Hey, you want to go to church with us? Do you want to be discipled? Because I was saying I'm a Christian, but I wasn't living like one. So I thank God that they understood the difference between a person trying their best to be with God and someone who's been forgiven by grace. That's what the gospel shares. Number three, so chronologically, you exist. And then as a Christian, you become a Christian when you hear the gospel revealed and you believe it. And then you access that grace when you trust in him. Romans 5, 2 says that by faith, we have access. By faith, we have access into this grace in which we stand. And Paul begins to list all of the benefits of God's grace. It justifies us. It declares us right with God. It gives us peace with God. And it gives us access access to the Lord himself. The Bible says that Christ died to bring us to God. And we can't come into the throne room of the most holy being in the universe in our own self-righteousness. We need his grace to take away our sins and to qualify us, to call us righteous, even though we didn't live righteously, because at Christ's expense, he gave his life so that we could receive his righteousness as a gift. That's what grace does. It gives us access to the Father. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would say God's grace is accessible to you. But there's that condition. You need to believe. That's the way into the grace of God. As Christians, we're in grace. It's a place where we're abiding. It's a position for us. We are in Christ, which means we have access to all the blessings that are in Christ. And his grace begins to get poured out as we access God's presence through him. Does that make sense? We've got three done, seven to go. Now, grace is a hard concept. It's very ethereal. Maybe you're thinking, well, I came here to find out what should I do to make my life better. Well, grace doesn't say do. Grace says done. It's what Jesus did for you that counts. Just access it. Just trust in him. Just come to him. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When is our time of need? Well, when we come into existence, we needed grace. When we heard the gospel, we needed that grace so someone would tell us. When we put our faith in Christ, we received grace to access God's presence. And fourthly, after being saved, we continue to need the grace of God. In fact, the apostles, after preaching the gospel and people were converted, they said to them in Acts chapter 13, 43, it says, and after the meeting broke up, many Jews and Gentile converts formerly in Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So they're becoming disciples, right? They're converts. They're starting to follow the apostles who spoke with them and urged them. So what advice does the apostle have for new believers? Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. 
maybe at this point you're thinking, well, I'm already in grace. Why do I need to be told to continue? Well, when I came here a few months ago, Pastor Kevin was teaching from Colossians, and it says that if you continue in the faith firmly, steadfast, that implies it's possible not to continue, that there's a choice you make to continue. And in fact, the next few verses there in Acts, even though there were some Jews that began to follow them, when they saw the Gentiles becoming Christians, they got a little jealous and said, "Um, maybe we're not going to continue in this grace. We're going to go back to Judaism. Scary thought. Now, I don't want to find out if it's even possible for me not to continue in his grace. I just ask God, please help me to continue in your grace. And I know that faith accesses his grace. So I'm going to stay in the faith. There's no reason why I shouldn't trust Jesus. He's fully trustworthy. So let's continue in our faith. Amen. And when we continue in his grace, his grace continues to change us and to make us what he wants us to be. All right. So if you don't get grace, I want to encourage you to keep studying it. Keep continuing in the word. Continue in fellowship. Continue in prayer. Continue in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread. Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in these things. And the church was built up. Continue. Well, if we continue in the grace of God, the grace of God continues to be poured out on our lives. God gives grace, not only to those who believe, but also those who are humble. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So let me talk a little bit about humility and faith, because this is our practical application. How do you do grace? Well, you don't do it. What you do is you trust him who's done it. So faith says, God can do all things. What does humility say? Maybe humility says, apart from him, I can do nothing. So that's a good combination. If you have only humility, I can't do it, but you don't have faith that he can, then you're going to be in despair. But if you have faith, he could do all things and you don't have humility. So can I. (laughs) Then God's going to resist you and you won't have access to all of his grace. So we need both. Balancing act, the riding of the bicycle, both legs, faith and humility, faith and humility. Does that make sense? Because it's God's standard. He gives grace to whom he wants to give grace to. And he wants to give it to believers who are humble. Now we're all still working on that, aren't we? So number five, what is number five? Grace edifies, builds, and strengthens us. Edifies is one of those old words. It means to build up and to strengthen. I'll just jump straight into scripture. It says, Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. That's a great report card. Imagine if that was said about this church. Great grace was upon them. And then later on, 9.31 in the book of Acts says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear or awe of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Hallelujah. Isn't that what we want to see? The church growing and multiplying? I mean, this one verse says that they fulfilled that promise from Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Galilee, and Samaria. And here it came to pass. How in the world did they do that? I mean, these ragtag fishermen and tax collectors that argued about who was the greatest, now they've reached all these places in a matter of a few years? Well, because great grace was upon them. And that grace, what it does, it doesn't just save us and forgive us and help us to continue, but it edifies us. It builds us up. There's other scriptures that you can look up there that says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Be strong in the grace of the Lord. Grace is not just for forgiveness, it's for strength and for building up. So 
Again, how do you get that grace for building up? By faith and humility. Say, Lord, I, I believe you can do that. I believe you can make me what you want me to be. Build me up into the man that you intended. It's your work. I can't do it, but I believe you can. That's how it works. And wouldn't that be a blessing if more people in the church just dove in and served where there's a need to build others up? Like, that would be awesome. Well, how are we going to do that? We ask for volunteers in the children's ministry and audiovisuals. Well, what's going to motivate you to volunteer? The grace of God. Not because those children deserve it. Not because you think you'll do a great job at sound, since I am a sound guy and I've trained sound people. Some people probably won't do a good job at sound, <laughs> but you can train even if your ears ringing. I've trained one guy who had who had uh, tinnitus and he always had the volume up just a little bit too loud and he couldn't hear the feedback. But God built him up. We said, okay, just bring the volume down a little bit here and you're good. You're good. You can't hear that feedback, but with a little love and encouragement, the body edifies itself. Grace edifies. Now, if this was your story, where are you at on this continuum? If you're hearing me, you exist. You've heard the gospel from me already, so that's been revealed. Have you accessed that salvation? Do you have access to God? Are you continuing in your faith? Are you being built up right now just hearing about the grace of God? I mean, it's pretty exciting. I can't wait till I get to number 10. That's my favorite. But you're thinking, well, that's all I know about grace. What more is there about God's grace? Well, it's like those infomercials. But wait, there's more. God's grace overwhelms. Doesn't just build you up and strengthen you. It overpowers you. Now, I don't know if you've experienced that. It's been a few times in my life where I can say I felt this feeling of being overwhelmed by how gracious God is. The first time was when someone explained to me that Jesus was thinking of us on the cross, and that's what kept him there, not the nails. Then he was thinking of us. And I personalized, and I thought, wow, he was thinking of me while he's suffering? Yeah, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then later sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that was overwhelming. I mean, I cried. I'm not that emotional of a person. I looked around in the church I was visiting. It was my dad's uh, Baptist church. No one else was crying. Everyone else just had a straight face. Maybe that's just what they do. They cry on the inside. But I was like, is anyone else hearing this? It's overwhelming. You know, when the love of God fills your heart, it says in Romans 5, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God. You can't help but overflow and love back to God. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. So that's grace that overwhelms. But that's just from my experience. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't really believe that the Bible teaches that. Well, just wait. There's more. It says in Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, God gave us the law to show us how exceedingly sinful we are. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. However much sin you've done, there's more grace available to cover it. Now, this isn't licentiousness, therefore go and sin as much as you want, because there's infinite amounts of grace. No, that's not what it means. But that is true. However much sin is in your life, God has an enough grace to cover it. That word, much more. Listen to this definition from Strong's Dictionary. So it's the Greek word perisuo. Perisuo, it means to superabound, to be in excess, superfluous, to cause to excel, to make more, to have more, abundance, be the better, enough and to spare, exceed, increase, remain over and above. So that's perisuo. But that's not the word he used in 521. He used hooper perisuo, which is like hyper what I just said. So how like just exceedingly abundantly, it's overwhelming and it fits in my acronym. Grace of God. <laughs> Overwhelm. Overwhelming grace. Be overwhelmed by his grace today. Think about this. God has more. You've been hit by these waves of his grace. There's a whole ocean behind that that you can dive into. Let it overwhelm you. 
Number seven, what comes after being overwhelmed? I mean, it's already more than I can handle. If God's grace overwhelms, then that's enough for me, I think. I don't think I need any more grace, do I? Anyone thinking that today? I need a hamburger or something. That's what I need. (laughs) Well, maybe. And if that's in your future, that's a product of God's grace too. So future grace, let's talk about that. This is where I start to get so excited. God's grace is not just for your past. It's not just for your present. God's grace is for your future. And not just today, what you're having for lunch, but the ages to come. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Ephesians 2, 7. Please turn there and, and read it. Can I have a volunteer to read it out loud? Ephesians 2, 7. Someone read it nice and loud. Amen. The ages to come. What are the ages to come? Well, I'm 44 now. I'm going to be 45. No, he's not talking about that age. Well, maybe he is. The period of my life that I have left to live. That's an age to come. When will I die? I don't know. Uh, Maybe Jesus will come back before I die. What is that called? The rapture, right? We're waiting for Jesus to come in the clouds. And at that point in time, a new age will begin called the tribulation. And when he raptures us to heaven, oh my goodness, there's so many great verses I don't have time to share. First Peter 1.13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and be sober-minded. Let your hope be fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more grace that will be brought to you when? When you see Jesus, either at your death to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or if he comes in the clouds right now and we're all raptured and we see him and all of the saints that are resurrected, boom, that's an amazing amount of grace that's going to be given to you to get access not only into this nice relationship with God, him in heaven, we on earth, but to take us up to heaven, access to enter heaven with Jesus himself. That's what our hope should be fully in, right? Not this world. This world is going to burn, truly, you know, and if this world is going to burn, what kind of people should we be? People living for eternity, living for that day when Jesus comes back. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But it, I, I can only do well if he edifies me, if, if he overwhelms me, if he continues to give me grace in the ages to come. Let's go to number eight. God's grace. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about future times, right? So God's grace, when we see Jesus, it's going to put us in the same kind of body that he has, the resurrected body, one that is glorious, made for the heavens. So it's God's grace that glorifies our bodies and our faces. It says in uh, first or second, there, second Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's not like the old covenant. Moses looked at the tablets of stone, his face glowed for a little while, then it faded. But the more we get to know Jesus, the more inwardly our countenance will be glorified. And one day, our body will be glorified as well. The grace of God glorifies. God's grace glorifies. I mean, the older I get, the more I look forward to that. That's all I'll need to say. Number nine, we're getting close to the end. All of these different things are like facets of God's grace. It says in Second Peter that we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold is like multifaceted. There was an interesting commentary I read. So this word manifold grace, Myers uh, commentary says, it's many colored grace. As when a ray of light breaks into a spray of many hues, so each of us receives God's grace at a different angle and flashes it back broken up into some fresh color. 
color. So that inspired this painting right here and a shopping trip to Michael's yesterday for these shiny colors and stuff. I had a lot of fun. I love the grace of God. And it's just like to put visuals with it. Just think about God's grace. Like there's so many facets to it. The more closely you look at it, it's like, wow, that's more glorious than I could ever comprehend. Normally I do use a small diamond in one of my uh, sketches where I give the dark background of human history upon which the glory of God shines. And we need to understand that we don't deserve any of this. We deserve to be separated from God. We don't deserve to exist to have the gospel revealed to us, but God gives it to us generously. The glorious grace of God. Now, he not only glorifies us in the ages to come, when we see Jesus, we'll be glorified. But let's go to, what is number nine? The eternal state. Our eternity is a product of God's grace. Not only do we get grace when we see Jesus and we're ushered into heaven, having access to get in, but to stay there. You ever thought about that? That while we're in heaven, is God done giving us grace? Oh, that was for the earth. That was for when you were a sinner. Now that you're in a glorified body, you don't need forgiveness anymore, right? Right. But is God's grace only for forgiveness? No, it's for much more than that. So let's think about how does God's grace apply in eternity? Now this really, if you're like me, like tripping out on weird things like that, like what kind of grace are we going to have in eternity? You know that song, Amazing Grace? There's a verse that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I don't know if it's because I'm from Santa Cruz and I like tripping out on stuff like that, but the number of days we have in heaven, like after 10,000 years, we still have the same number of days. We're going to be there. It's infinity. <laughs> There's no end to it. Talk about Cooper Poyusumo or whatever that Greek word for hyper abundant, over amazing, overwhelming grace. So in 10,000 years, think of it. I'm going to come to you again, Ephesians 2, 7, in the ages to come. So the eternal age, he will be revealing to us the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in 10,000 years, I'm going to come to you and say, oh my goodness, you'll never believe what the Lord showed me today about his kindness and grace toward us. Something I never saw before. I'm going to be on like reason number 957, how God gives grace. It's unending. He delights to show us his favor. Now, now you're thinking, okay, chronologically, that's the end, right? How can, is there anything after eternity? I mean, our eternal state, our eternal life, there's no end to it. What can top that? There's one thing, one thing. What's greater, the gift or the giver? The giver. Amen. So God not only gives us all of these gifts by his grace, but he gives us himself as a gift. Hallelujah. I mean, what would heaven be like without God there? It wouldn't be heaven. I'm going to read to you some verses. Just be blown away. Revelation 21.3. I heard a voice from heaven, a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And he himself will be with them as their God. It makes me want to cry. Normally when I preach this part, I, I dance around the pulpit a couple of times. <laughs> I, I did come from a Pentecostal background. That does come out of me sometimes when I get to this point, because he's our father. He's our deliverer. Our deliverer is the greatest grace that he can give us, is himself. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live how? By faith, accessing that grace in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Jesus loves you too. He knows your name and he gave himself for you on the cross. He suffered and he died for you and for me. And then he rose from the dead and now he ever lives to intercede for us. And he's looking for that day. He's preparing a place for us so that where he is, we may be also. We get to be with our Lord forever. That is if you're a believer. So if you're not a believer here today, today's the day. I don't know what more I could offer you, but wait, there is more. 
God wants you to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. So let me give you five practical steps. How do we respond? Number one, give thanks. If he's so generous, we should say thank you, right? Secondly, have humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Third, have faith and continue in your faith because faith accesses grace. Four, share your faith with others so they can get that revelation and they can get access and they can continue and they can get into heaven with us one day and be with the Lord. And fifthly, work. Now you're thinking, what? You said it's done. Grace is not due, but done. Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you are saved through faith that not from works, not of yourselves, so that you should not boast. But the next verse says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance that we should just walk in them. And Paul said, I work harder than all the other apostles, yet not I. It's the grace of God that works in me. So that's a valid response to the grace of God. In other words, works are not the root of salvation, but it is the fruit. So if you've been receiving these waves of grace today and in your life and in your future, you're going to receive more. Let's praise the Lord. Let's thank him for what he's done. I don't know, we're going to end with a worship song. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you for giving us amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I hope you enjoyed that teaching. Thank you so much for listening to the Dwell on Truth show. Tune in again next Sunday at 8 a.m. here on KSCO or on the podcast at dwellontruth.org. That's all the time we have today. So may God richly bless you as you continue to dwell on truth. I'm Brenton Powers. Talk to you next time.